Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. And today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joyce Flickiger, who is a professor of religion at Emory University. Welcome to the program, Joyce. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And as you can already hear, um, Joyce has a radio voice. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, while I'm sure you're here for the content and not our voices, um, if you don't like the content, just keep listening for the pleasant uh, voices. So uh, we have not had the pleasure of interacting before uh, me booking this interview with you. Um, it's for me, uh, sort of in the more starting phases of my career, it's a surreal uh, pleasure to speak with people that I've I have sort of either read or cited until this point. So it's always slightly surreal, but it's part of the fun of doing this. So well, at my stage of the career, I'm also meeting people still whose uh, work I have cited and used. And <laughs> that. So we're in good company <laughs> with each other. Great. So today we're talking about um, Joyce's uh, fantastic, uh, fascinating uh, new book, Material Acts in Everyday Hindu Worlds. It's a Sunni publication uh, that State University of New York Press, for those who may not be so familiar with academic publications. Um, it's 2020, and it will be out in October. It's already ready for pre-order, available for pre-order. So uh, we will put the link uh, from the, uh, Sunni as well as the Amazon link uh, as part of this podcast blurb. So uh, do check it out and pre-order it um, uh, now for the fall. Uh, it's it's currently available. So the book, um, where do I start? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this, your journey sort of coming to this research. Well, you know, it's a little circuitous. Um, and I thought about this question because I've heard you ask other people. I thought, where would I start? So I thought, I'm an ethnographer. Um, and so I start with, you know, ethnographic episodes. Uh, I really have three that I think uh, give some life to uh, how this started. The first was um, a long time ago in uh, 2010, I was asked to be a faculty on-site curator of a, an exhibit on Indian gold that came to Emory's Carlos Museum. And uh, they asked me to give a lecture on Indian wedding necklaces, of which there were many spectacular uh, objects, uh, wedding necklaces in the exhibit itself. I had the good fortune of being able to go back to India for the summer between when they asked me and when I had to give the lecture. And um, I just went to all three uh, geographic sites where I've done research, um, Chhattisgarh, Hyderabad in the Deccan Plateau, and Tirupati in South India, and just asked the women I know to show me their wedding necklaces. And I started to photograph them and elicit some commentary about them. And um, I began to imagine a world that I recognized as a religious world in which materiality like the wedding necklace or what they call Tali in South India, Mangosutra in the North, was agentive. That means that it actually caused things to happen in women's lives according to their own indigenous perceptions. So that, you know, if you rub turmeric on the thread of a tali, um, that kept the tali and your marriage healthy. Or I open up the chapter on ornaments with an interaction I had in Chhattisgarh where I hadn't put on glass bangles 
and I went to see a friend. Usually I do. I was only there two, three days. I thought, oh, I don't have to. And she just fingered my silver bangles and said, this is not a good thing. We went to the temple, bought glass bangles, and then I was okay, meaning the state of my marriage was okay. So um, I also did a lot of work on tattoos and their agency. So that was one kind of set of encounters where ornaments actually make things happen. Another material encounter I had was um, when I returned to Tirupati for a brief visit and I took the footpath uphill to um, the major magnificent temple of Sri Venkateshwara. I had gone up many times by car and bus, but this was the first time I had walked up. And at the base of the footpath, there was a human form, a cement, uh, that I learned was called a maladasri, or a man from a cobbler caste. And there were no other pilgrims around when I came across this image. And the first thing I wanted to do was to lay down next to it. And I learned later that uh, this figure was a devotee of the God uphill. And because of his low caste status, he was not allowed into the temple. This was as close as he could come. And so God came down to him um, to meet him. Uh, I thought I've got to go back and see what other people do. I was with a friend who, you know, just running up the hill. There was going to be no waiting around. So I returned the next day and I saw that pilgrims did exactly what I had felt compelled to do, which was to lay down in prostration next to the image who himself is prostrated. And I thought, so what compelled me to want to do that? And in part, it's what um, uh, Jane Bennett writes about as an assemblage of materials. That is, it was the location of the image at the base of the mountain on a pilgrim route. It was that the image was covered with turmeric and vermilion powders, causing that cement to just glow. It was the marigold garden garlands encircling the image. Um, and so I opened the book with that image. And then very briefly, another uh, kind of set of images that caused me to think about the agency of materiality are cement ravanas in Chhattisgarh. So I grew up in India and went to school there till I was 18. So my parents uh, lived in Chhattisgarh and I had seen these cement images growing up and didn't think anything about them. Also didn't know much about the Ramayana and all that growing up. When I returned for fieldwork, I saw them and it just struck me that we have the narrative destruction of Ravana, but here in Chhattisgarh, he is a permanent cement image in many, many, many villages and towns. And so a long time ago, you know, did a photo essay that I never published um, on these images. And so I just thought, let me go back and find out what they were. So those are really the, the kind of three, you know, sparks really that, put this together. And uh, I was writing a fellowship application uh, and thought, you know, what new book do I have? And I said, okay, well, here are three things that I have that I can uh, explore further. And then I added some others and there was a book. So, um, so many questions come to mind. Uh, tell us a little bit about your process. Is that typically how you end up uh diving deeply into a topic through some sort of experience or uh, observation in, in, in lived reality? Well, you know, except for my dissertation, um, each of my books has emerged from an encounter with a person or a place or a festival um, and then becomes the book. I mean, my dissertation topic, uh, it changed dramatically, was on women's versions of the Ramayana. Those, I hate to tell you how old I am, those were the days we did not, you know, gallivant to India for pre-dissertation research. And, you know, I just went and lived in a village 
and started recording Ramayana things. <laughs> and then I realized, I mean, they sing songs about the Ramayana, but it's not nearly the most interesting thing going on for they, for the villagers themselves. And so I changed to think about a wider repertoire of oral performances. And that book became indigenous conceptions of genre. So even there, it was, you know, I live in a place, I meet people and I kind of pick up what in teaching I call um, contextualization cues, like what's important to them? Um, And then start with that. But of course I analyze much beyond what they might say. So yeah, it's a pretty typical process for my books. You know, this is a theme that I think resurfaces um, on the podcast and certainly in my thinking. And the theme that um, for those of us that study uh, India or Hinduism, um, we're so we're often wise to take our lead from the data. That the, the data has to somehow drive the the very inquiry mm-hmm. and certainly the theorization, and that. You know, we we just it's a massive pitfall if we do it the other way around, which I think is probably more uh, the course in um, studying other religions or certainly other disciplines. And I just find that so interesting, like looking at it, looking at the data and, and having it tell you the question to ask, because your question may not be commensurate with what you're seeing. So, you know, I think that's a great sort of um, that's right approach. Mm-hmm. Um, with your, as you uh, as you call, circuitous uh, storytelling at the outset, as a um, as a, a scholar and um, uh, a lover of Purana and epic narratives, certainly circuitous tales are where the juice is at. So feel free to, to tell us as many of them as you'd like. That's um, right. Okay. You know, you um, one of the thinkers that I, I use in my work. Um, on narrative is uh, Umberto Eco. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has this seemingly simple but but profound to me idea that the text tells you how to interpret it. Right, a text is an interpretational machine. Yeah, yep. that's that's it's 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 reason for being is to guide you into proper interpretation. Right, uh, it's it, that has profound uh, ramifications. But I really see the analog here of. Um, your 3D real world text calling you towards a certain interpretation, as with the prostration at the at the foot of the at the hill that you start your book with. Um, mm-hmm. So I, that 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 sort of analog came to mind as you were speaking. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, each chapter before we dive into some of the some of the nuts and bolts of your of your study. Um. Okay. You know, I I thought uh, before we do that, maybe I should just say a word about the title. Uh, Yes, uh, Material Acts, yes. Material Acts. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it it came to me from, um, I mean, I situate myself in performance studies, which, uh, you know, was something that developed in the 80s in terms of oral tradition, that is to think about performance as creative, not just reflective. So, you know, that it creates ideologies, theologies, identities, rather than just reflecting them. And so I came to materiality through that lens, that materiality actually creates something, not just reflects it. So I think, you know, we can say ornaments, uh, you know, generally we can say, okay, it reflects caste status, it reflects regional status, but it does much more than reflect. Um, So the term, you know, quite honestly, I was trying to think of a title for the fellowship I was applying for. And I thought, well, I really like material acts. It's drawn from J.L. Austin's term speech acts, which I'm sure you would recognize. Um, And, you know, he argued that utterances, a a certain kind of utterance that he calls performatives, do something rather than reflect uh, a pre-existing idea. So he uses the example of um, in many in some, I have to say, some Western 
uh, wedding ceremonies, the statement, I now proclaim you to be man and wife, is the moment where that relationship is recreated as one of marriage. So that's where um, it the, the title itself comes from. Um, so if you don't have questions about that, I can go on to the chapters if you want. No, that's, um, I think that's brilliant. Uh, that this, uh, when you're talking about the agency of materiality, you know, uh, material acts, what do, what do the, what do the materials do? You know, and it's a very useful way, um, uh, of thinking about, uh, religious phenomenon, uh, in Hinduism. So, uh, I think it's hopefully going to be self-evident to the people listening and you can feel free to maybe we can unpack the first chapter a bit. Okay. I, I might just say that since this is a book, um, new books in Hindu studies, uh, there is one form of materiality that I do not talk about that will seem for people who study Hindu traditions, a rather big gap. And that is, I do not talk about, um, the materiality of images of Hindu deities. And that might seem the most obvious agentive material. Um, and I didn't do it for a couple reasons. Uh, one is that um, uh, it um, has been written about so much and it also is rather a unique form of materiality. I mean, you can think, you know, is God there? Is he called there? Does ritual cause him to be there or her? I just really didn't want to get into that. And I thought, let me do materials that people haven't written about. So that's and, uh, one caveat. No, thank you for pointing that out. And for some reason, that didn't strike me as um, as, as, as a gap, right? <laughs> for, for some reason, for whatever reason that I have to think about on the spot right now that you mention it, it seemed to make sense to me that you were looking at, um, you know, materials that most would think of as insentient. That's in, right. In the world versus yeah. uh, it makes sense that a murti is thought of as um, sentient in that, you know, through the prana patishta, there's the, the, you know, the deity dwells there. So yeah. obviously the murti can dispel, can uh, dispense grace in this context, but then this 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 really beautiful subtle realm of um, sentient insentient of 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 object or subject of of action of uh, things such as jewelry. Uh, you use some really beautiful examples, including vastu and jyotisha, mm -hmm. and things yeah. that we, we would think of as inert or insentient, but somehow are sacredly empowered to accomplish a task in the life of, um, of devotees. So it right. really makes perfect sense that you, you in focusing on what to the naked eye would seem insentient, that that is the very point of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the new materialists, uh, have done that, but I feel like, um, that focus has not really been made in the study of Hindu traditions. That is, you know, we have, um, let's say, Richard Davis's The Lives of Hindu Images and Arjun Apadurai, The Social Life of Things. Uh, but the focus is still on human beings as actors or the materiality as reflection of that human world. And I just wanted to, ultimately, I'm going to get there. It's, it's um, you know, we need human beings. They don't act without human beings without the human context. But I wanted to really put the focus on materials that we don't think of as agentive. So I can kind of go through them. Um, the first chapter we've already talked a little bit about is on the material materiality of ornaments. And I start with that because it's so obvious to anybody who's spent any time in it, you know, with Hindu women in particular, but also men, that um, in that worldview, ornaments are agentive. That is, they create relationships, they're protective. Um, I start, I focus primarily on uh, ornaments of marriage, 
And then also I talk about uh, ritual strings as ornaments. And then I think what most people are the most fascinated by is really tattoos as ornaments. Um, so that tattoos are considered to be the one thing that goes with women. I'm speaking of Chhattisgarh and, and Eastern Orissa, uh, uh, that, that follows a woman into the next life. It's kind of ironic because they're inscribed on the body. The body is either cremated or buried and disintegrates, but the tattoos have a life after um, uh, death. And, you know, one Gond woman, so that's a tribal group, Adivasi group in Chhattisgarh and Orissa, uh, also goes into Maharashtra, but I haven't done work there. Uh, she told me that when a person dies, God, and she named him as Bhagavan, takes your tattoos one by one by one, ek, 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 karke, uh, and sells them in order to buy you food. And, and I said, so what about men who don't get traditionally tattooed? She had never thought of it. She said, well, I guess they're going to be hungry. Or another woman, you know, these days, tattoos are considered rather backwards by many uh, in those castes that get tattoos because, you know, they're, the young girls are now educated and we don't do backwards things like getting tattoos like our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers did. So I asked my going friend, so what about these girls who aren't getting tattooed these days? What are they going to eat? She said, I think they're going to have to eat air. So you can see it's really like she lives in a worldview in which that tangible ink on skin has its own life and agency. Um, so I start with that, uh, an indigenous view of the agency of materiality. And, you know, I think they don't need these new materialists whom I've read, uh, Alfred Gell or um, Bruno Latour or Jane Bennett, whose work I love. Um, I needed them to help me articulate agency, but the people I work with do not need them. They have their own ideas about material agency. The next chapter is focused on Vesham, or what I translate as guising and disguise, but it's a word, Indian language word, that really covers any kind of dress, and dress, Vesham also includes ornament. Um, so I look at Vesham in the context of uh, the village goddess Gangama in Tirupati. Now I wrote a whole book about her, and there is a chapter on Vesham there from which much of this is drawn. But I think it takes kind of new life when it's put together with the other chapters. Um, so this book, that this chapter really emphasizes the importance of repertoire. I think that's one of the things that my book offers. Um, and I've written about repertoire elsewhere also that, you know, people may not say a lot about one form of Vesham, but, if, but they may say something about another form that causes you then to look at the first form. So for example, one form of Vesham is a particular caste of men from a particular caste of weavers who take on the Vesham of the goddess. And then it's, they aren't possessed. Like it's literally put, putting on those saris, those ornaments that transforms them into the goddess. And how do we know that that transformation has taken place? Because they go around the gullies of Tirupati and householders come out and worship them not like the goddess, as the goddess. They are the goddess. So then I thought, okay, Vesham is transformative there. Let me look at other forms of Vesham. What the festival is known for as far as Vesham is something called Tri Vesham or female guising, where men take on female guise, meaning saris, breasts, braids, ornaments, and walk around Tirupati streets, ultimately to end up at the, the temple of the goddess. 
So there's very little reflection on what Strivesha might create. But I, as a performance studies person, and also having seen Vesham creating the goddess, I thought something is happening. So I have to look for cues in the rest of the Gangama repertoire, both narrative, ritual, and material as to what might be happening. So for that, I actually looked at narratives of Vesham changing uh, masculinity. There's a fabulous story of Adiparashakti, who is the you know, first primordial being in the world. As she reaches puberty, she experiences sexual desire. She decides to create the three, create somebody to satisfy her desire. She first creates Brahma. The first words out of his mouth are Amma, which means mother. So that precludes him. Then Vishnu, first words out of his mouth, Amma, that precludes him. But Shiva, the first words out of his mouth, there's Eme, which is a Telugu uh, word that husbands use for their pronoun, for their wives. So she said, aha. But he's very, he doesn't want to marry her because she has more power than he. So she gives him her third eye and her trishul or trident. So that's another form of materiality. Like that is her power. And then he says he'll marry her, but he backs out. So now she is furious with him. And she changes the three deities into women. Specifically servants who massage her feet. Then she herself realizes this is not a dharmic world. It's not according to the order of things. She changes them back to men, but they are transformed. Their arrogant masculinity is transformed. And they themselves say, we cannot bear you. We, we don't have the shakti or the power to bear you. You have to divide up into, you know, the three goddesses who are their consorts and the 360,000 village goddesses so that we can bear even a tiny piece of you. So I use that narrative now to look at, okay, Men are becoming women, but they're becoming a different kind of man. And then the final um, form of Vesham is, you know, I asked women, so you don't take uh, the Vesham of the goddess, right? Women of that family. And they said, we take Vesham, we put on turmeric every Tuesday and Friday, which are days uh, special to the goddess. So then I thought, okay, turmeric is a Vesham. Where is it used? How is it used? Um, and it's used by women when they go to the temple. And it's a, a kind of materiality that performs their relationship with the goddess and their shared Shakti. Men do not have that according to this own tradition. So I asked a woman, so many men told us they're afraid of Gangama. You know, she's so Ugra, so excessive that we, you know, we can hardly look at her. And I asked a woman who's, I was staying at a guest house, you know, who swept the floors, if she was afraid of Gangava, and she says, no, she has Shakti and I have Shakti, meaning power. So I'm not afraid, but men, they don't have Shakti. So they're afraid. So in a way, for men to put on strivesham, female guising, is for them to have access to the goddess and to that female-centered world. So that's pretty much what that chapter is about. I think I have to shorten my discussions. That's that's fascinating. I mean, originally I was thinking we'd talk about the topics of each chapter and dive in, but we can do it. I can sort of interject as we go along. Okay, and, yeah. Um, I usually leave a fair bit of space so that um, you can talk about your book. Um, but it, it's just so fascinating, right? The, the narrative, uh, the way the narrative map, maps on to um, the rituals and the practice and even sort of the, the, the ideology, the, 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 the social fabric. I mean, it, rarely in my experience, you see such a direct mapping on of, of the myth and the practice and the actual yeah. uh, conscious lived understanding of the people. 
And so, you know, that raises a methodological issue. Like, how was, how was I going to get at the agency of materiality? And in the first two chapters, that is on ornaments and visham, um, I relied a lot on indigenous commentary. So I think, in a way, this book about materiality has more human discourse in it than most books on materiality do. But I do that to establish that worldview in which materiality is agentive. And then in the next three chapters, I say, okay, let's look at some materials that they don't talk about that much. But with that analytic framework, so I, you know, what starts as an indigenous worldview, I'm now shifting into an analytic frame where materials have agency. Um, so the next three, the next one, I won't talk about too much because it's really complicated, but I look at um, the ritual materials that are offered to two goddesses. One is Gangama and one is Lakshmi in Varalakshmi Puja in um, Hyderabad. And that is, I, I argue, so the women themselves would say we're, or in Gangama, it's not just women, we're offering things to please the goddess, to invite her. But I argue, so I'm taking it one step further than what they're saying, that those very materials create the goddesses that they worship. So it's, it's kind of a reflexive move there. So that Lakshmi, you know, lots of the same things are offered. Uh, turmeric and vermilion and flowers and food. So you're thinking but the goddesses themselves are so different. What makes them so different in this context of materiality? And for Varalakshmi Puja, it is that the materials are bounded in space and social space. Like it's a domestic ritual and the only people there are family members or same cast members. So, it's all auspicious and contained. Whereas for Gangama, the entire Uru or, you know, town, we can say, traditional town, is the landscape of the festival. The streets, the temples, the homes, men, women, a wide range of castes. And that all makes it a little excessive. And so I translate the word Ugra. She's called an Ugra goddess all the time. But I translate it as excess, not anger. She's not angry. She's just a lot. And we need that excess in order for her to do her task of destroying illness and drought. She's a bit much, we can say. That's right. She is just a bit much. So you don't want her the whole year. Because like as one person said, if, if we kept her at home the whole year, that's all we would do is feed her. She becomes so excessive and her needs also then surpass what vegetarian offerings can fulfill. And so then ultimately she's offered animal sacrifice. And I think that's a key difference. But what I'm trying to argue is the offerings are not different because the goddesses are different necessarily, but the offerings create different goddesses also. So that's that chapter. One that I really, I really love the last two chapters. Um, the fourth chapter is about shrines to village goddesses or Grama Devata in Hyderabad. So Gangama is herself a village goddess and her uh, temple has transformed exponentially in the same ways as these shrines that I am analyzing in Hyderabad. So one could bring that in, but I tried to keep it about Hyderabad. So Brahma Devatas or village goddesses generally live on the outskirts of villages or towns and protect those boundaries or bodies of water. 
sometimes they're at village crossroads also. Um, but generally they're, you know, a stone under a tree or a series of stones under a temporary thatched roof. They need and want the open air and they are known to wander around. Um, and so there are all kinds of stories about people wanting to build permanent shrines to them and the shrine, you know, the roofs fall in and the, the walls cave in because the goddesses are not happy. But in Hyderabad, there are, I mean, on every gully, every main street, every thoroughfare, small shrines to Gramadevatas that have initially cement walls and, and a roof over them. And then eventually, you know, it there may be a boundary wall, uh, you know, a uh, to really, and I was told by so many people, it's to protect the goddesses who used to live outdoors. Now Hyderabad has grown up around them. And literally they need protection from this crazy traffic. I have the most great photograph of one right in the middle of a four-lane highway, you know, that has a little wall built up around it. So that was, you know, the initial impulse uh, to protect the goddesses. Then they started decorating the shrines, often with on the outside walls with pictures of uh, Kali or Durga. Then people start to see those and think that the inside goddess is Kali or Durga. I asked many people who are just stopped, do namaskaram or greet the goddess. Who's in there? Well, they just assumed it was Durga. Um, then some of these shrines have actually been raised, R-A-Z-E, knocked down, and full Puranic temples built to them, and to the goddess. And then these goddesses start to have human anthropomorphic forms. The one I can tell you about that was in the part of uh, Sikandarabad where I, I have lived for years when I go back to India. You know, she started out as a tiny little stone. I met the um, caretakers. They were from the Potter caste. Um, and then the, the neighborhood organization decided that we needed to upgrade the shrine in particular so that there would not be animal sacrifice and drinking at the shrine, which the goddess herself requires. So they raised it and built a Puranic temple with a dome and, you know, carvings outside. And they hired a Brahmin priest who recites Sanskrit. They're big signs, no animal sacrifice, no alcohol. The goddess herself has a, a human form now meaning anthropomorphic form. She's been given two sons, Ganesh and Murugan. And I said, like, it, it looks like she's Parvati. And they said, no, no, these are just sons, you know, the, the, we were told that we should give her some protectors. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like here she is, this Ugra goddess who's, Reason for living is to protect human uh, habitat. And now she's been all boxed in and Sanskritized, meaning because she's they're reciting Sanskrit to her, and now she needs protectors. And so I argue that what started as an architectural change to um, protect her from traffic has actually changed the nature of the goddess herself. So, you know, I think ultimately this Gramadevata culture is being lost. And yeah, it's being lost, but it starts through architecture. That's my argument in there. And then the last chapter is um, about these cement ravanas that I grew up seeing that basically nobody notices until Dasheta, uh, when they perform Ramlilas in front of them. And I try to think, what does it, their sheer presence create in Chhattisgarh? You know, Chhattisgarh 
uh, has primarily the goddess and Shiva, lots of Hanumans, very few Ram temples, except now in big cities. Raipur, for example. Very few Ramas on puja shelves at home. I mean, extremely few. So, but here we have Ravan, you know, 15 feet, 12 feet out there in the public view every day. People walk past him. So I just try to think, what does that create? His presence, what does the presence create? And I think it creates an alternative uh, ideology, theology. Um, in South Chhattisgarh, the furthest I've gone to, to document these is Kanker, which is about uh, south of Raipur. It's at the mouth of Bastar. So Bastar uh, is primarily Adivasi. And then the Adivasi start to, as you go north, um, become Hinduized in the sense that they start worshiping Hindu deities, they're considered a caste, but they keep their own Gon deities as well. So I went to two villages where for Dashera, but it's performed after Dashera Day itself, um, to see what happens. And there, Ravana, we have cement images, but we also have um, images of him that are mobile, that move, that join Gon deities in a procession through the village. And he's becoming, instead of Shitala Devi, who's a Gon deity, uh, becoming Sanskritized or Brahmanized or Hinduized, um, we have Ravana become Gondized, I can say. He becomes a Gond deity. And so we need the narrative of the Ramayana. So there aren't such images down in uh, Bastar. So we need the narrative, but Ravana is not dependent upon it. He has an existence uh, separate from the narrative. So does um, Hanuman, by the way. I mean, there are just tons of Hanuman shrines under trees around Chhattisgarh. And, you know, it, it, it's really independent of the narrative. So that's what that's about. And, and people, when I would ask about, you know, so is there a Ravan here in, let's say I went to Bilai. It's a big industrial city and I stayed in a hotel. I was there for some other purpose altogether, but I asked the young boys working at, I can say boys, they're like 15, at the hotel, you know, are there any cement ravanas? Well, they thought there was. They would have to go home and ask their parents. And the next day they came back. They said, you have my entire family talking about Ravan. We've never thought about it. And we went together and looked at him. And yeah. So that's that's so good. <laughs> you, you, your research has, has altered the trajectory of the tradition, at least in that family. Yes, um, it has. Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, so so at the end of this odyssey, looking at material acts, what do you conclude? Well, you know, the purpose of the book is to broaden the parameters of religious studies. Now, whether people who don't do Hinduism read it or not, I have no idea. Um, I'm hoping, Dave, I've been in touch with David Morgan. He knows about the book at UNC, and he's also writing a new book on materiality. So I'm hoping that it enters that conversation, that a Hindu worldview where materials are agentive will change what we see, what kinds of materials we analyze. So um, it's really to broaden uh, the parameters of religious studies. All my work, ethnographic work, is also to broaden the parameter of not only what counts as religion, but who counts. You know, if we start studying ornaments, suddenly a whole cast of women count in a different way in our study of religion than they would if we were focused on texts or rituals. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my takeaway. It's really to raise the possibilities of materiality in the study of religion. 
Well, I think you, 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 if memory serves, you raise that that point at the at the very end, one of the final paragraphs, where you sort of, um, you know, uh, you reflect on well, you know, is materiality religion, right? Does this mm-hmm. religion? Should this be studied in religious studies? And, you know, while I couldn't begin to answer that, certainly it seems to me, you know, I was taking a this must have been at some point in my master's. I was studying um, aesthetics, Indian mm-hmm. aesthetics. And the idea of a difference between the sacred and the secular was so tenuous. Mm-hmm. It dawned on me that, 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 that our very notions of, uh, of a distinction between uh, the sacred and the secular, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're as, as, as problematic as they can be at times, even in our own modern Western societies. It seems it seems artificial when you go to India. And, Very and artificial. There's a there's a there's a, a murti on every rickshaw dashboard. Yeah. <laughs> there's a murti in every till. Um, well, you uh, know, I like uh, the I, when I teach, I tell my students doesn't matter what I'm teaching in religious studies for this class. The definition of religion is dharma. I said, you know, you're, you may get in trouble with that when you go out in the world. But for this class, let's say that religion is what holds the world together. What makes sense of the world? What gives meaning to the world? That is dharma. So I just taught a first-year seminar on life histories where we used that um, definition to say that narrative itself, really any kind of narrative, is a religious act. Well, these were a bunch of 18-year-olds, so I don't know really how much they really got that. But um, So in this case, if we use that as our definition, then ornaments that change people, status, and maintain people's status, um, that follow you into the afterworld, that's religion. It's a stretch for a lot of people. I get it, but I'm gonna I'm giving it a, a try. Well, but I think I mean this is obviously well beyond uh, the parameters of your study. Um, but it seems to me, how do I how do I articulate this this half baked idea that seems intuitive to me? Um, so things like talisman and prophecy are not nearly as problematic in a Hindu context. That's right. as, in, as in an Abrahamic context. So whether we believe whether we whether we believe that these things have you know uh, ontological essence of their own is sort of beside the point. Certainly, the worldview permits that um, the sacred pervade the profane, the profane to the point that you know you you know you can utter a mantra and and and, and divinize a coin in your hand if you wanted to. That's right. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's a very powerful idea. It's, it's a very different worldview than we're accustomed to. That's right. And I, I you know, the, my students, I mean, they have now gotten into Vesham. It's a word my students, my undergraduates at Emory University, the graduate students for sure, use as a, every day as an athletic category. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's Halloween. Okay. What are the Vesham creating? Uh, That's so good. They're so into tattoos. So it can be, you know, it changes the way we look at the world around us. Now, I I should just mention, I bring this up in the afterward, that, you know, um, many Hindus, now notice how many adjectives I'm going to use. I don't want to draw a huge generalization. But for most of my classes, uh, my students go down to um, the Hindu Temple of Atlanta, which is a Venkateshwara temple here in town, beautiful temple, and they're very hospitable and they welcome my students. I do not take my students. I send them in twos and threes because if I go, everybody knows me and then they just talk to me. So, you know, many Hindus at that temple have told my students we don't actually worship the Murti. It's a symbol. It's a place of concentration. And 
you know, I think now why why is that? They're speaking in English. That's the first thing. But you know, there's a kind of apology for materiality and religion in Protestant Christianity, which is still dominant in worldview, if not in numbers of people practicing. So I want to honor that, that they say they're not worshiping it. But then I make the move, okay, but let's use it analytically. Analytically, what is material doing? And I hope that I've made that shift by the end of the book. Oh, I think you have. I think you mm-hmm. have. Um, and certainly for those listening to the po- this podcast, y- you will have because they understand uh, your intent. It's always interesting. We rarely get the chance to speak to the, if only we had the chance to speak to the authors of the articles and books that we've read throughout the years. I know. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, you just told them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's very useful. I'm telling my graduate students, you just need to keep an eye on this. Like, first of all, it's the crib notes to the book. But also you get, you know, some different perspectives that you may not get in a review or by reading the book itself. I think it's a great project. So I thank you. No, the, the pleasure was all mine. Uh, this is, um, it's a labor of love, right? Uh, I, I find the time to do these because A, it keeps me relatively well-read and B, I, I get a chance to interact um, with, 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 you know, interesting people about interesting ideas that that only serve to enrich my own research and teaching and i think more importantly for me they help me understand this thing called life Mm -hmm. they help me to understand um you know i tease uh, clients and some students at times i say i have i have i have pieces of paper that say i'm an expert in religion but really my expertise is people that's my my greatest passion and the, the thing that i'm most comfortable understanding is is why people do what they do and how they work. Uh, it can be quite useful in studying texts, and yeah, certainly me too. as an ethnographer. But but this these exchanges um, teach me so much about how others engage the material uh, theoretically, methodologically, but also their very stance. You know the the intangible attitudes they bring, the the, the questions that they come to mind. I mean, my very first question just I don't script these, as you probably guess. Was mm-hmm. it's fascinating? You had a, you had a you had sort of a transformative experience or a notable, remarkable. Literally, I mean, it was a you had a an experience worth remarking, and that becomes the bija, the seed of a book. That's right. Yeah. And I thought, well, what a wonderful way to go about writing a book, because then the book is 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 genuinely um, centered on lived experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's that's certainly not always the case uh, at the ivory tower. I'd say. That's right. Um, yeah. So uh, fantastic uh, for those of you who are listening. By all means, go pre-order the book or keep it in mind for your research. For your library, it's very expensive, and hopefully next year it will come out in India and in paperback. That's my hope. But right now, for your library. <laughs> order it for your library. Uh, I'm sure that, um, you know, I happen to publish with, with Rutledge. So uh, other than libraries, there might be three people on the planet that have bought my book. Which That's is fine. right. And we know there are ways and means that other people read it and we're not even going to name them. We're, we're not going to name them. We are uh, not. I don't even know the names. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you listening, um, uh, just just for the record, uh, um, Joyce's last name is pronounced. How do you pronounce it? Flickiger. Flickiger. So when I say Joyce Flickiger, you'll know that it's not me <laughs> totally right. butchering her name. Uh, that That is how it's pronounced. So we've been speaking with uh, Joyce Flickiger on her really, really fascinating book, uh, Material Acts in Everyday Hindu Worlds. Um Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It was really fun. Okay. So before we close, why don't you tell us what you're working on next? Okay. Well, it's a very long ways, my next project, from um, this book on materiality. And, you know, I think this, um, maybe the, the different kinds of books I've written is maybe a part of my training in, my PhD is actually in South Asian studies, not religion. 
And, um, you know, every so often I have to prove myself, but finally I don't. <laughs> so I can do, you know, more kind of what's happening in India and change my approaches rather dramatically. But I was born in the hill station, Himalayan hill station of Missouri. And so I don't go back there all that often, you know, maybe once every, I go to India every year, but maybe to Missouri every five or six years. So about five years ago, I went and um, I noticed and I met the director of something called the Missouri Heritage Center. And she gives heritage walks. And, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about heritage over the years, but what heritage means in Missouri is British. Like if you go on a heritage walk, it's one British house or bungalow after another. And the heritage center is about colonial Missouri. And, you know, so I, being an ethnographer, I just thought, well, wait a minute. There are all kinds of Indians here. They, they brought some heritage. Who are they? So I grew up, I went to school in Missouri till uh, 12th grade. So I was pretty familiar with a particular part of the old bazaar, which is called Landauer. And um, on that trip, I was only in Missouri three days. You know, I just started talking to some of the shopkeepers whose fathers I knew. So let's say it's a tailor or a jeweler. In high school, I would have gone to their, their fathers. Now it's the son. So I asked them if they would be willing to participate in the project. I said, you're part of this heritage. I'd like to come back and just add, learn more about who came. Because basically, Missouri was a potato field. And then the British established a health center there. Um, and then, you know, lots of people from the plains began to come up to serve the British. Serve, not meaning in a servile way, but to support, there we go, you know, tailors, bakers. Um, so anyhow, I've gone back three times for two months each and talked with people and getting oral histories of the shopkeepers and their families on what I call Mullingar Hill. So I had an American Institute of Indian Studies fellowship for this. It's called Immigration and Belonging, Migration and Belonging on Mullingar Hill, Oral Histories of a Himalayan Hill Station. Um, you know, you can hardly use those words these days, migration and belonging in political India and even in the United States. So I'm not sure what the final title will be, but I, you know, introduced myself um, as someone who was born here and went to school. They were not that interested in the school part because that school is not accessible to someone of that socioeconomic but that you were born here. I was born here, they say. And then, you know, we established kinship relationships, older brother, younger brother, aunt. Um, so I, you know, I just started to ask, who were your dada pardada? Who were your great grandparents? Who came? Where did they come from? Why did they come? And of course, women are still coming because they're marrying in. Um, and so I'm asking a simple thing. What is home? What makes a place home? And yeah, that's the project. So it's been really, really fun for me. Oh, it sounds fun. And I mean, I mean, who, who on earth do you need to prove yourself to at this point in your career? <laughs> no, nobody. It actually is related to Missouri. I mean, to religion in the sense you can think of Val Daniel's fluid signs, you know, that the Uru, where you are born the earth you live on, the water you drink changes who you are. But what happens when you're displaced from that Uru, from that Stan, from that water, from those deities, um, and move somewhere else? What? And of course, it's happening all over India. I just happen to be studying one mile of an old bazaar. And yeah, so we'll see where it goes. I'm, I just am starting to write right now. I haven't written a thing, haven't given any presentations on it, nothing. Uh, so when you do finish it, uh, we'll have you back. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. For those of you listening, uh, keep reading, uh, keep listening, uh, stay safe, and and take a look around you and try to understand uh, the agency 
of materiality in your own life. Take care.